This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. I may have wanted a Valentine's Day, but I didn't expect Rory Stewart to turn up at my door with a sleeping bag. Help! He won't leave my house! He's eaten the food, hogged the bathroom all morning, and won't tell me how long he's staying. But seriously, the former Tory MP running for Mayor of London is begging people to stay in their houses, just so he could see London through their eyes. Here's a thought. What if we believed people's lived experiences instead of performatively putting ourselves in their shoes for a few hours? Speaking of parasites, Bong Joon-ho's film has won four Oscars. The film is the first non-English film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Presumably, this is why an ABC correspondent asked a South Korean director, who lives in Korea, speaks Korean, and hired a Korean cast, why he decided to make his entire film in Korean. Did you catch Natalie Portman wearing a gown embroidered with the names of female directors snubbed at the awards? She's been labelled a hypocrite because her own production company only features one female director, herself. Natalie Portman's efforts may not be disruptive, but I'll tell you what has been. These storms. Storm Kiara's winds have been so powerful, it's managed to blow a Scottish waterfall upwards. The storm of the century may have passed, but don't celebrate too early because Storm Dennis is on its way. Expect train delays, random trampolines in your garden, and a lot more rain. Let's just hope we won't get another 20 degrees in February like last year, because I don't think I'm ready to switch to a summer wardrobe just yet. This is your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review our show. A huge thanks to everyone who has so far. In today's episode, we will be discussing the latest on the deportations to Jamaica, Boris Johnson's cabinet reshuffle, a musician Slow Tie and comedian Catherine Ryan at the NME Awards. I'm joined by social media creative, host and writer Chante Joseph and social commentator and political activist Patrick Vernon. In the wake of that, they suspended flights to Jamaica. So the question today is why have they resumed those Let's talk about flights? the recent deportations to Jamaica. On Tuesday, Home Office deported 17 people to Jamaica. These people did not have a British citizenship, but lived in the UK for most of their lives and had indefinite right to stay. Ex-Chancellor Sajid Javid said those on board posed a risk to the public. He stated, these are all foreign national offenders. They have all received custodial sentences of 12 months or more. They're responsible for crimes like manslaughter, rape and dealing in class A drugs. One of these cases was a 23-year-old who spent 15 months in jail after being convicted at 17 for drug offences. He came to the UK aged five. Sarja Javid said, we're not even saying sorry. Downing Street said 25 people were prevented from being deported as a result of a court ruling. Originally, about 50 had been expected to be on board. Patrick, you've been campaigning on Windrush and 
against government deportations. Mm. The government is saying it's sending back serious criminals, but is this true? The government have been pushing this really hard. They've had the same strategy last year when they had the first deportation fight after the scandal, uh, where they're um, just on 29 people deported in February 2019 and 17 this year. And it's the same strategy of views, basically. And these, are, these are hardened criminals, they're a minister society, etc., etc. But in all these cases, yes, yeah, some of them have committed serious offences. No, we can't avoid and not skirt around issue, one or two of them have been involved in manslaughter and sexual offences, but the vast majority of them have been involved in stuff to do with careless driving, um, drug offences, some criminal damage, etc, etc. The government have used this as a way to justify the ongoing hostile environment policy. They've also used it in a way to deflect from the real issues around the Windrush scandal, because some of the issues are still outstanding. They did make a commitment that all deportation flights would be suspended when the publication of a report called Lessons Learned Review. At the time, a lot of people up and down the country, activists, lawyers, uh, p- politicians, demanded a public inquiry uh, into this, because I think all roads lead to number 10. Yes, Theresa May had her hands on this when she was Home Secretary, but particularly David Cameron and the Cabinet Office were involved, and we wanted to have a public inquiry to see the development, the orchestration of this hostile environment policy. But the government decided instead to have uh, a review called Lessons Learned by William Williams, a well-respected black woman working in the civil service. Um, That report is a year behind schedule. And since then, they had deportation fines in February last year and the more recent one. The people on those flights are in their 20s up to their 50s. They are essentially the grandchildren of the Windrush generation. This is a replication of what happened in the 50s and 60s. So people that came over as teenagers or children as minors um, in the 80s and 90s, um, yes, they got caught up in stuff. Uh, but we all know that the disproportionality and the way that the police operate around stop and search and, and the way that criminality is imposed on black men, that, you know, you're going to have this. Is so one of the consequences of this disproportionality, you've got more black men with, with um, criminal records because of the way that the police operates and also the people not taking responsibility. So we have to acknowledge that as well. So how long has this specific issue been going on for? The Foreign National Directive was introduced in the last 10 to 15 years. So if you are a foreign national, i.e. not born in Britain, then the courts, as part of their sentencing policy, you can be deported. And there have been, quite, there have been loads of cases where people have been deported. So, you, so for example, you've committed a crime, you, you, do your ta- you do your time in prison, and then as soon as you're, you know, day one after you've done your time, you, all, you, you get automatically deported. That happens quite a lot. So and, and you know and there've been lots of cases again of black young people being deported in that situation. The other thing that the government don't talk about, they don't talk about the impact on family life. Completely ignored, as if the government said, "Well, we don't care about family life." All of them got children. Actually, some of them have got caring responsibilities, and that's completely not even taken into consideration. Which, if it was a normal kind of criminal justice process, that would be seen as part of a mitigated circumstances about people's family life. But as far as when it comes to deportation, that is not even considered. Shante, do you think using blanket terms like criminals to describe these individuals who are being deported as having an impact on wider public sympathy towards them? Definitely. You can see a lot in the 
kind of rhetoric online from people who are reading these Daily Mail headlines that, you know, well, they're criminals, we should throw them away, why are they here for, blah, 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 they're a stain on British society. But then there's this whole thing about, like, black people being, like, painted as more, like, having close proximity to crime. Like, so we pathologise black people as being criminals and it's something that has been in, like, rhetoric for ages. And I remember seeing this online. In 1982, Kenneth Newman, who was the chief of police of Metropolitan, said, in Jamaicans, you have people who are constitutionally disorderly. It is simply in their makeup. Jamaicans are constitutionally disposed to be anti-authority. So this is something that has, like, since Caribbean people have been in this country, they've their proximity to crime has been something that has been continuously highlighted and I remember like when the Windrush scandal happened it was quite it it felt like a shift in the discourse because a lot of these like quite right-wing white nationalist newspapers were saying you know they helped us rebuild our country and blah 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 blah. and so I think strategically positioning this as something that has nothing to do with Windrush but to do with like just random criminals makes it easier to deport them and there's that whole thing about like what what is crime the marker for what constitutes as a crime or not really does depend on on who you are. And because it, the judicial system is terrible in the way that it protects and treats black people, simply because laws themselves are there to protect and reinforce whiteness. So of course, black people are going to be overrepresented in the judicial system. And of course, you're going to have, you're going to pre- present crime committed by black people as worse than, than white people. And this is all being drummed up and used in our in our media to basically be like, why would you feel sorry for these people? They're they're hardcore criminals who pose a threat to you, who pose a threat to whiteness, who pose a threat to order. This week, Jeremy Corbyn brought this up, yeah. didn't he? He basically, Patrick, what did he say to? Yeah, so at parliamentary question time, Jeremy Corbyn directly challenged the government's policy around the flight, the deportations, and hostile environments, and then. Boris Johnson said, oh, you know, we, the Windrush generation, you know, of course we support them. They've done fantastic work and blah, 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 you know, all that usual rhetoric. And then Jeremy Corbyn returned back saying, well, if that's the case, why did you deport them? Why did you create this hostile environment? And he said, um, uh, Prime Minister, if there was a white boy with blonde hair who doubled in Class A drugs and also was involved or orchestrated the beating up of a journalist, do you think that person should be deported? And obviously that question that was raised by Jeremy Corbyn was about the Prime Minister, about his past. Uh, And then Jeremy Corbyn continued saying, well, obviously there's one rule for white boys and there's another rule for black boys. And in many ways, I think that is the heart of the matter of this. Exactly. And also um, what was uh, actually quite scandalous was the way the entire Conservative Party reacted. And they were like, oh, how dare you? How dare you talk about these criminals who were deporting and even, you know, mentioned them in the same sentence as the Windrush generation who came yeah. here and helped, as you said, Shantae, yeah. to rebuild the UK. But it's, again, this narrative of good immigrant, bad immigrant, you yes. know, what it means to be British and what it doesn't mean to be British. The question, Rani, is the, the deportation flight is about what is Britishness. So is Britishness, Britishness based on if you're born in Britain, you're British, or is it Britishness based on how long you've been in Britain, or is Britishness based on whether you fit in a particular ideology or perception or how you're perceived? I mean, obviously, the issue of, of identity and Britishness has always been there. I mean, Britain as a country, as a nation state, we've been, they've been grappling with this since the Act of Settlement in 1701 anyway. But I think the hostile environment has raised fundamental issues. What is Britishness? They've defined Windrush in a narrow context. They've only defined Windrush 
basically one or two generations, which means that if you don't talk about the grandchildren of the Windrush generation, therefore, if not Windrush, therefore the criminal, you know, and that's, so that's the deliberate strategy on one part by the government and organisations like Movement for Justice and others and lawyers saying that we should use the definition of Windrush to include the great, the, cha- the grandchildren of, four generations of, they're part of that, the descendants of the Windrush generation. You can't just simply stop at one generation. So that's the first thing. But more importantly, it's the use of the word of good character. So, and um, one of the impacts of the scandal is that the government created a fast track scheme for people to regularise their status um, called the Windrush Task Force, which is ridiculous because people should have be we should have automatic status because on the Nationality Act of nineteen forty eight people were deemed to be British. So why now you have to still reapply or or justify that you're still British? Do you think there is a detachment from reality of what deportation actually means in these cases? and what some of these deportees are facing. Definitely. Like, I remember there was a story on the news about the young boy who was sent back to Jamaica, and every time he went to try and find a job, they would hear his accent, and then they would realise he was British, and then they would be like, wait, why are you here? Why are you here looking for a job? And then he'd have to talk about being a deportee, and it's a huge stigma attached to you when you're going back home. Also, a lot of these people haven't been back to the Caribbean in, in years or do not have any memories of ever living there because they spent most of their life or all of their formative years in this country. It kind of feels like the government has this out of sight, out of mind mentality where you kind of just send these people off and you don't actually have to deal with or think about the consequences or how much it's going to impact on them mentally, physically, what are they going to do financially for support? Not everyone has families there. I've seen that there are quite a few like charities and organisations that are like setting up like support systems for these people. But why is it charity, charitable organisations that are doing this instead of the government who are sending them back there with no plans? So um, Why is there not a system set in place to basically help them naturalised back into Jamaica essentially yeah exactly and it, it's just wild because I think that whole the whole stigma of crime as well when you're going back to the country that you were born in and you're being sent there as a criminal imagine how that's going to impact you it's, I think it's quite wild like even on that point even if you do commit a crime there is no way it should be legal for the government to then send you back to a country you have no memory of or you have no real idea of what it's like to live there like and I, and I think that's the thing as well. Like we like to say, oh, these people have only committed petty crimes. They shouldn't go. I personally be- believe, irrespective of the scale of the crime, there is no way that the government can basically say, you can't come back here. We're sending you back. That's the end of it. Like that is completely unethical. The whole idea of citizenships and borders anyway is quite exclusionary and very racist. Um, and so I just think that is completely wild, even with Shamima basically making her stateless. That is crazy, and I just think this sets an idea for what the government may do in the future. The current situation uh, in Jamaica is once people are deported, they are stateless because they're not recognised as British. When they arrive in Jamaica, they're stateless, so they have to go through a registration process to be able to become a Jamaican citizen. The problem in Jamaica is the stigma of being a deportee is terrible because once you're a criminal, you're always a criminal. There's no Rehabilitation Act in Jamaica. If you lie or pretend that you haven't got a criminal record, you'll be sacked on the spot. So it's very difficult to get jobs. There have been some charities in the past which have been funded by the Foreign Office to support people around the resettlement process. Um, there was one charity in Kingston I met last year. I was in, I was in Jamaica last year and they arranged for me to talk to five of the men that were deported last year. Sadly, there's no sympathy by the average Jamaican to deportees because the perception is you went to the West, the West is a land full of milk and honey and streets of paved with gold, you messed up 
and when I've got time for you. I mean, in a nutshell, that is the way Jamaicans see this whole stuff. And on top of that, you're a bad criminal. There's no real support. So the, the, the reliance on remittances from friends and family, dot Skype call if they're lucky. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite horrendous, basically. Deportation is the ultimate state sanction. There are a number of organisations which I'm working with, such as Movement for Justice, Beaming Lawyers Barrack, um, Trade Unions, um, Windrush Action, um, Defend Windrush. All of them are campaigning on this issue. We're all working together. There's three elements. Firstly, we've got to fight for the hostile environment. That needs to be scrapped. Mm. Secondly, we need to get the Lessons Learned Review published. That report has to come out in the public domain so we can actually see where are the structural fault lines and racism and the operation of the Home Office. I think the Home Office needs to be changed fundamentally. It still has a very colonial attitude towards people of colour. We need to give solidarity to the families um, who have been affected by this. So any way that we can support them, that's important around getting their messages heard. And I think thirdly, more importantly, we need to advocate for, put pressure on political parties and your politicians. Contact your local MP to find out when there are key debates in Parliament to show up. Don't take our votes for granted, basically. It's tough to do with immigration policy, anything connected with Windrush. They need to be there in Parliament. Otherwise, when it comes to next general election, then you have an opportunity to exercise your democratic rights. So, the Cabinet reshuffle. Boris Johnson carried out the first major reshuffle of his cabinet since being elected Prime Minister in December. The reshuffle was meant to be moderate with no major drama. However, Sajid Javid has resigned as Chancellor weeks before the new budget is set to be announced. Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's most senior advisor, is said to have told Javid that he must axe all of his special advisers, but he refused to. There's been a growing rift between the two. Shante, are you sad to see Sajid Javid go? No. I'm not sad to see Sajid Javid go anywhere. Can't stand him. I just think number 10, the Treasury and the Cabinet are all singing from the same hymn sheet. Like, this is going to be a government that is very much led by number 10. Like, whether or not, you know, Dominic Cummings is is pulling all the strings here, whatever. But all we know is that they are going to do this stuff they said they would do. And they're not going to have much opposition at a higher level. Um, and I see kind of Sajid Javid leaving as solidifying that. Um, obviously, he, he's been pushed out or, and they told him, you know, you need to fire all your advisors. Um, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he left. And I kind of just feel like we're trying to paint Sajid Javid as this like moral hero who who believes in in, in himself and, and the quality of information from his team. But like this government is still committing atrocities and they're still going to do so. But now with a, a cabinet and now with a, like a three, three-pronged approach that is completely behind them all the way. So it kind of just feels like things are still bad. Yeah, I mean, he's been replaced by his deputy, Rishi Sunak, the chief secretary to the Treasury, who's become a quick favourite within number 10. He's had essentially a phenomenal promotion. Patrick, what have your first impressions been of him? Well, he's a loyalist. He's basically, and the reason why he's there and he's taken over from his previous boss is because he'll do what... Boris tells him and number 10 will tell him. There's always been this natural love-hate relationship between number 10 and number 11. You know, you can think of the classic Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, the Margaret Thatcher era. The role of the Chancellor is basically, like any organisation, is to make sure there's accountability run the public finances and number 10 wants to spend money and control the budget. So that's why it's, I think it's about the check and balances of government, of good government. You need to have those checks and balances. I think that's quite important. What's quite clear that the new Chancellor will basically do what is required. 
with Javed, I don't feel sorry for him. He fits in the classic dilemma of inverted commas trying to do the right thing in terms of his post, but also recognizing um, that he remember he wanted to be the leader of the Conservative Party and be Prime Minister, and he was given that job. And all the people that were sacked basically were all candidates for leadership. Uh, if you remember, and he's got rid of all of them because at the time Boris had to create this unity cabinet, basically, but now he's got the majority, he doesn't need them. He's got a whole court of people, including James Killively, um, who are loyalists, they'll do what is required. Boris doesn't need to even do media stuff now, they'll just do the work for him basically. And he can go back to the Caribbean on another £15,000 holiday. I mean, yeah, exactly. Also, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak has been called a yes dog. Apparently, he will just basically do what he's told. Um, And yeah, some people are wondering whether this is a good or bad thing, because on the one hand, he won't challenge Boris. But on the other hand, you know, people have been saying that infighting means that there hasn't been much progress in terms of the Conservatives doing what they've wanted to do. So... Mm we will see their policies actually maybe carried out. Unlike Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak is an enthusiastic Brexiteer. Back in 2016, he was arguing that the UK would be better off outside the bloc because it could control its own immigration and welcome talent from all across the world. Rishi himself is a second-generation immigrant of Punjabi descent. He was head boy at Winchester College. He studied PPE at Oxford. He also took an MBA at Stanford University. He's married to Akshata Murthy, whose father is India's sixth richest man. What are his um, voting records like? The MP for Richmond in North Yorkshire has consistently voted for a reduction in spending on welfare benefits, against higher taxes on banks and for reducing capital gains tax. He has consistently voted for reducing the rate of corporation tax and also consistently voted against measures to prevent climate change. What do you make of all that? Does that surprise you? No, not really. I mean, if you if you look at the voting record of the rest of the people who've been promoted in the cabinet, the new people, it's it's all very consistent. They all have very similar similar politics. This whole cabinet is like unapologetically leave. Like they were ardent Brexiters, all of them. So this is like this doesn't surprise me in the least bit. And it's I guess like you're saying, he's a yes dog and it's easy to get people to do what you want, especially when you have the same politics as them. I mean, I never had much hope for this Conservative government anyway. So either way, I'm still like very much in my feelings about this whole thing. And I think this cabinet just solidifies, I guess the rest of the way this um, Boris Johnson's premiership is going to go, like it's going to be very tough. It's going to be unrelenting. It's only going to serve the interests of those who, who will profit, those who who gain from things like stricter immigration, like policies that are for business as opposed to welfare. So I'm 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 not surprised. Yeah, well so what about some of the other appointments? The new culture secretary, for example. Yeah, so our new culture secretary, his name is Oliver Dowden. He is also very, very, very loyal to um Boris Johnson, supported Boris Johnson basically pretty much every single time he's stood for any significant role in the party. Um, But it's really weird because he's supposed to be the culture secretary, but he's never voted on equal gay rights. He's never voted on allowing marriage between people of the same sex. He's generally voted against laws to promote equality humanity. He's a very, very low-key minister. There really isn't much out there about him, Um, but he's also shown no kind of interest in this role, which people, I guess, call like the minister for fun, they call it. But I don't see him doing much for the arts anyway. He doesn't seem particularly interested in it. I think for him, this is probably like a career move. It's an opportunity to prove yourself, to get a bigger role in the future and rewarding him for being loyal to Boris Johnson. There's also been talk of 
the cabinet being the most diverse yet. Uh, Rishi Proudy talks of being a first generation immigrant and is, you know, very proud of his Asian identity. In an interview, he said he's been fortunate not to have endured much racism growing up, although he said there was one incident that does stick in his head. However, he can't conceive of racism happening today in the UK. Rishi has generally voted against a right to remain for EU nationals already living in the UK and consistently voted for a stricter asylum system and a stronger enforcement of immigration rules. Do you think, like his predecessor, Sajid, Rishi will use his immigrant background to justify oppressive measures against minorities? I think, sadly, quite a few of the BME uh, politicians Actually, all political parties do that anyway. Uh, but I think it's interesting because if you look at the Conservative Party, they've probably got, they've got more BME MPs than ever before. And ironically, the Conservative Party have got more black men MPs than Labour. There's loads of black women, but hardly any black men, you know, apart from David Lamy and Clive Lewis, etc. So what's interesting, if you see the likes of James Cleverly, He's been promoted in the cabinet reshuffle. He's always defended against saying oh, racism's not there, discrimination there. Unfortunately, this is part of the, the far right agenda. The right agenda. The right agenda is if you do well, you run your successful business, or you're a good migrant, then we'll look after you. If you're a criminal, you want to agitate for your rights or feminism, LGBT issues. You're not a good citizen because you make too much noise, and will you know you're a problem. Mm. All of the people who kind of have been selected, particularly the minority ethnic people who've been selected for this cabinet are like just not meant for their role so the new secretary of state for business alok sharma he's also been appointed president of the cop 24 um what was it cop 24 conference yeah he has repeatedly voted against anything to do with climate change he has essentially voted against like the energy industry being required to put in place like a strategy for carbon capture so you can essentially start to you know maybe find people who are using too much carbon or using too little carbon whatever um, and he's kind of seeing it as an as an as an opportunity to to I guess put the business agenda before climate change, and that doesn't make any sense. The new Attorney General Suella Braverman is a passionate Brexiteer, and she's essentially saying that she wants to take back power from the courts, which really doesn't make any sense because essentially the courts are there to give the government advice to tell the government you can't do this; this is against the law. And if you just ignore them because it doesn't suit your politics, then that's kind of a breakdown in trust, and the, the breakdown in that relationship is more harmful for the citizens than anyone else. Um, and so these are people who are ethnic minorities who have been promoted into cabinet positions who are actively working against the interests of the communities that they come from i think it's very clear it, it's i mean it's, it, there's a polarization of politics between left and right center whatever you want to call it if you want to get into politics and get fast track well there's one way if you want to be true social justice there's another way just take your pick mm. And and that's that on that. (laughs) Um, So just finally, Priti Patel has kept her job as Home Secretary. Um, Are you surprised? Uh, Not at all, because again, number one, she's a loyalist. Um, what was interesting, um, there was a debate in Parliament on Monday. So, as you know, we've talked a lot about the deportation flights. There's also a debate in Parliament on the Windrush Compensation Scheme bill. David Lamb, was, he was doing his, another groundbreaking speech again, and she walked out half of his speech. He called her out and said, you're walking out while I'm talking. How dare you? To me, that shows the level of arrogance and disinterest. Uh, so she's perfect for the job. If you want to do science, see me later, you know what I'm saying? Thank you. Oh my god! Alright, she wants me to tend to her flowers. I love him. 
Let's chat about what happened at the NME Awards between Slow Tie and Catherine Ryan. On Wednesday, musician Slow Tie has been accused of making lewd comments towards Catherine Ryan, who was hosting the NME Awards, right after he won the Hero of the Year prize. The 25-year-old later threw his drink into the crowd and confronted a member of the audience before being dragged out. Clips of the incident emerged on social media, with many calling him a misogynist. Slow Tie apologised on Twitter the next day, stating, What started as a joke between us escalated to a point of shameful actions on my part. I want to unreservedly apologise. There is no excuse and I am sorry. I am not a hero. Catherine replied to this tweet, saying, I knew you were joking, and congratulations on your very award-worthy album. I hope you know that a bad day on social media passes so quickly. Everything will be better tomorrow. Shante, what did you make of this entire situation? So initially, when I saw the video, it was it was completely out of context, can I say first. So when I watched this video out of context, I was like, this is crazy, this is disgusting. How are people letting this happen? Why are they still cheering in the crowd? This doesn't make any sense. And it felt like, I can't believe this woman is being objectified. Look at the way he's like all over her like and this is look it looks completely unwarranted she's trying to really ease the situation in a funny way that doesn't come across a bit like aggressive but people are still cheering and so I was obviously popping off on Twitter as well being like this is crazy what's going on I think Vice did a piece basically they were at the event talking about exactly what was happening and so essentially it was like a skit that was going on between the two of them and she was she's a comedian and she was making a joke about how she's really attracted to like younger boys like slow tie and then she was like trying to tell him to come up on stage and he was like no 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 and they were joking about it and then he went up on stage to get his uh, his hero award um, and then they, he kind of like continued the joke but you could tell at this point he had been drinking a bit he was really leery and she was still trying to keep up like the comedy act and he was just being a bit much um, and so that kind of provided context and so I was like oh I kind of understand what's happening here but it still was very intense and although she has come out to be like it was fine it was just a joke you could see the way she was really trying to de-escalate that situation because it was really uncomfortable to watch and I think for her as well she was probably just trying to do her job and he was taking things way too far but um when I first saw it I saw it without the context and so I was like this is absolutely wild um and now I kind of understand what's going on but it still doesn't make it right and then he kind of got into a fight with somebody who called him a misogynist and he like threw his drink at them and like it's weird because I know he's supposed to be this guy who's a rock star. He's like the modern day rock star, blah, blah, blah. Anti-establishment. Yeah. He had that severed head of Boris Johnson and everyone's like, yeah, we love this guy. He's, you know, he's a rock star. Um, but it, it is very questionable, his his behaviour. And I think it makes me think a lot about like rock stars in history or people in history that we've seen as anti-establishment who didn't care, who were sticking up to the man and the ways in which women were kind of a part of that narrative and the way women were abused as a part of that narrative and how much of being a really anti-establishment rock star is also about not respecting women and women's bodies and how kind of normalised this is. Absolutely. And people are saying that Catherine Ryan handled it like a boss. Do you think she was, in fact, minimising what happened? How, like, how much can we comment on what her intentions were and how she should feel? Because, you know, she is saying um, it was fine. But people are like, mm. was it fine? Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I kind of feel like I don't want to invalidate her experiences as a woman. And I don't want her to feel, I don't want to say that, you know, what she did was wrong and she should be outraged. But I want her to be 
smart in terms of calling out this behavior and acknowledging that as much as she didn't feel um, objectified and she didn't feel intimidated by it, any other woman who went through that would feel that way. And it's important for her to acknowledge that without kind of, without me anyway, invalidating her experiences. And yeah, do you think that praising how she handled it could potentially send a message that this is somehow the correct way to deal with a situation like this? I mean, you know, what about those who are less confident in these kinds of settings? Yeah, no, I don't think, I'm not going to call her a boss for like handling it because had it been me, I would have called that stuff out more or less immediately. And I would have been like, okay, cool. I know I'm supposed to be a comedian coming up character right now to say that this isn't okay because you have to be firm with people. It's unfortunate that we even have to be in these situations but there's that whole thing of like being scared or someone calling you a bitch or someone calling you bossy that you allow things to happen to you and you don't call them out because of of what people will say essentially but this what he did was was out of order nobody else would accept that like and I even felt like if it was a woman going on stage and doing all of that weird stuff you know she would be called a whole host of names um and she would be called out for it and I kind of feel like this wasn't the circumstance in which you kind of rise above it this is a circumstance in which you challenge what's going on and you, you use it to set an example of how you should and shouldn't behave at these types of events even generally I think what was so disappointing was that People uh, really like Slotai, right? They like what he stands for. They like his brand. And yes, he's anti-establishment. He's also very vocal about calling out lots of injustices. So it almost seemed like this really conflicted with his brand. Long term, will this actually affect his career? I don't think so. No. And I feel like he his whole his whole demeanor and who he is, this really speaks to that rock star mentality. So I kind of feel like this solidifies his brand further and gives people a reason to double down and continue to stan him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But he um as I said before, he did apologize yeah. straight away. What did you make of his apology? Did you think it was heartfelt? I feel like he has a mess to clean up. I think I don't I don't know his character, so I don't want to say this is just him, but basing it off, you know, how he carries himself, what he's like, what his music's like, what he's like on social media and stuff like that. I think his management probably went, you really effed it up this time, so you really need to, like, you know, you need to apologise. I don't know, if, if everyone had been laughing and joking and no one called for him to apologise, I don't think he would have done anything. Patrick, what did you make of the situation? Did you see any of this on social I, media? I mean, something afterwards, I you know, um, I saw that. I mean, it's the, I suppose it's a different world for me. I'm not in the I'm in the kind of activist political world and the media lovey dovey world, and maybe in those environments, people get carried away. You know, a bit too much cavossier, champagne, or whatever the whatever it is, and it's a very false world at the same time. So you know, you're almost like you have to create people are have have this extra bravado and that applies to everyone in that in that space and the question is if that was in a normal working environment number one there would be um, a formal grievance disciplinary the full works but right. obviously in the media world HR but obviously yeah. in this world it's the HR is done by Social media, social media. By social media, basically in a nutshell. If he's generally apologised, that's great. But we have to, it's a kind of lesson because there've been lots of well-known musicians who have spoken out against the government. They're very political, and everyone loves that. But sometimes, after making sexist, homophobic comments, then you know this is the flaw. I think the message for all of us is don't always pin your hopes on celebrities who who are going to fight social justice issues. His last album was called Nothing Great About Britain. And, you know, it really touched upon the themes that we spoke about in the previous conversations about, you know, 
uh, what it means to be British. And he is from the Midlands and he... In a lot of his songs, he talks about the struggle of, you know, growing up in a council estate and being a carer and um, just the system that people get trapped in. And so his music is so powerful in that sense. And it really, you know, in one of his songs, he's saying that the farmers are coming. So, you know, like um, the people from his area, you know, they're finally being recognized. And that's really amazing because... Mm -hmm. um, they don't get that kind of support and artistic support as well. So, oh, it was just such, it was just such a shame to see this happen because yeah. it's like, because the people who follow his work for the really strong messages that he yeah. um, he speaks about yeah. in his music, then you start thinking, well, how much do you really believe these yeah. things? Because if you believe these things really strongly, would you have acted in that way? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but there's lots of, I mean, I can remember uh, the likes of Butcher Banton when he was making lots of homophobic comments back in the day and eventually he was sent down for drugs or whatever it was but then he had this epiphany moment apologised for all the homophobic comments he made and changed his lyrics and became more grounded and he's probably even more popular now than when he's making those profanities so you know there's, there's hope there's, about, there's salvation there's rehabilitation unless you have direct access to the home office and it might be different oh god yeah um i mean let's hope that he does learn his lesson and that his apology was genuine i mean he said um that he wants to give the award to catherine what did you make of that do you think he should keep his his award is it performative what do you make of that i don't know i kind of feel like you know your past work is amazing it speaks to people who feel like disenfranchised and all that jazz and so you definitely earn your award but yeah, this was a moment where you just, uh, you just let it, you let it slip, and I think it's it's sad that a lot of the stuff he's done before is kind of being clouded by this one incident. I don't know if he should give his award up, um, but I think it's good that he has apologized and he acknowledged that he did something wrong. I mean, she's not going to take it anyway, so. No, exactly, exactly. Thank you so much both for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure to talk mm -hmm. to you. And where can we find you on social media? So I'm uh, I'm on Twitter, Patrick Vernon. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook, um, etc. So yeah, so you can people easily can easily get hold of me. Basically, yes. Brilliant. I'm the same. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Shantae J C H A N T A Y Y J A Y Y. I always have to spell it out. It's so long, but you have to do it. In other news. The government says regulator Ofcom will now have more powers over UK social media. A picture of squabbling mice topped the People's Poll Award in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. Church of England still deeply institutionally racist, says Archbishop. Tom and Jerry turned 80 years old this week. The Rock's daughter, Simone Johnson, is training to be the first fourth-generation WWE wrestler. And finally, Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas are expecting their first child. Thanks for listening to Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. Join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag YourBroccoliWeekly. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends.
Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and all your favorite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.